Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, as you recall, Dr. Smith and the robot had waited in hiding for the alien known as the Keeper to leave his giant spaceship. A spaceship filled with hundreds of caged animals gathered from every corner of the universe. The nefarious Dr. Smith now planned to steal the monstrous space vehicle and return with it to Earth. aboard. You will take off immediately. I will need time to study the controls. You may have exactly five seconds. Well, what are you waiting for? I must scan and compute control systems. I do not wish to make an error. You always have to make a problem out of everything, don't you? It's all perfectly simple. This one probably starts the power system. Warning! Do not tamper with alien controls. Nonsense. Any one of these could whisk us away from here. I wonder what that was. I think I may have done something wrong. Tin-plated fool. We've missed a golden opportunity to leave this miserable planet. Danger! Extreme danger! All creatures escaping. Welcome back, folks, for episode 17 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 17th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled The Keeper, Part 2. It was hard to wait a whole week before we could see the conclusion of this story, Kurt, but it's finally here. Hey, I enjoyed the way it allowed me to watch it several times. It's a goodie. But I do feel sorry for the original people who had no opportunity other than just sit there and stew for a whole week. I know, I know. Well, a few production notes before we begin with the story. We mentioned last time that Erwin Allen thought 42-year-old Barney Slater's original Keeper treatment was strong enough to be expanded into this two-parter, the only one of the series. 
Slater's scripts are noted for pushing the robot's character in a more comical human direction with the encouragement of script editor Tony Wilson. Now, Wilson also made some significant changes to the script for this episode that I'll mention when we get to those points. The director was 43-year-old Harry Harris, no relation to Jonathan. This was the first of five assignments for Lost in Space by Harris, and apparently Irwin liked the guy because he also hired him to direct 12 episodes of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, two episodes of Time Tunnel, and a whopping 24 episodes of Land of the Giants. In 1985, Harris would also direct Alan's acclaimed TV movie version of Alice in Wonderland. Oh, wow. Alan's Alice in Wonderland. I'll have to check that out. (laughs) That sounds pretty, I don't know, surreal, don't you think? It does. But you'll notice there's some veterans from all of Irwin Allen's TV shows in that rendition. Oh, so it'll almost be like little Easter eggs uh, we're seeing. I bet it's on YouTube. You know, it's also interesting to know that part two of uh, The Keeper is being directed by a different director. So, you know, that'll be interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. So we'll get a little comparison. This episode was shot from the 23rd through the 31st of December, 1965. It was seven days. It aired on Wednesday night, January 19th, 1966, and it was repeated in the summer on May 25th, 1966. All the characters are featured. Guest starring again as the keeper is the 56-year-old British-born Michael Rennie. We mentioned last time his famous role as Klaatu in The Day the Earth Stood Still. Prior to becoming an actor, he started out working as a car salesman and then a factory manager before getting his first acting job at age 26 as a stand-in for Robert Young in the 1936 Alfred Hitchcock film Secret Agent. Rennie had a reputation as a bit of a ladies' man, and his romances were frequently fodder for the tabloids and gossip columns of the day. He would wind up with 117 screen credits in both movies and TV before he died in 1971 at the far too young age of 61 from a heart aneurysm. Wow. Kind of ironic that a philanderer who broke so many hearts literally dies from a broken heart, huh? Indeed. In 1944, I don't know if you knew this or not, but he had an illegitimate son with his mistress while married to his first wife. And then in 1959, Otto Priminger, a.k.a. Mr. Freeze, got a divorce, (laughs) claiming uh, Miss Priminger was also having an affair with Rennie, who was also married at that time to his second wife. So Priminger directed Rennie in the 1951 film, The Thirteenth Letter. Now, that was just before Rennie became a media sensation and is very next role in The Day the Earth Stood Still. So I guess you might say Rennie was uh, pushing for a raise or something. Interesting. Well, that's the kind of stuff he, he was famous for in addition to his acting, I suppose. So Yeah, it's pretty cold, though, to uh, cheat on Mr. Freeze. I don't know. <laughs> you know, there were three Mr. Freezes. There was um, uh, Sanders, there was Eli Wallach, and then there was Mr. Freeze. I kind of like George Sanders the best because he had like the really thick German accent. No guns, no guns. But Otto Preminger was a close second. Well, there's another Batman tie-in as well because Michael Rennie also appeared in an episode of Batman, teamed up with the Catwoman as I think it was the Sandman, if I'm not That's mistaken. That's right, yeah. And he wore like meat coats and everything. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's kind of interesting. I always like seeing him. Back again as the lighted alien head in the Keeper's control room, (laughs) control yourself, Kurt, (laughs) was the Broadway veteran actor Wilbur Evans. And sadly, all the stuntmen inside those monster suits we see in the teaser are uncredited for this episode. Yeah, my heroes. Anything but the cookie monsters. (laughs) A hero of mine. Yep. Uh All right, well, let's get into this one. 
Act 1, the teaser starts as usual with a recap from last week's cliffhanger. The nefarious Dr. Smith and the robot observed the Keeper leave his monstrous spaceship, and they took advantage of his absence to sneak aboard and try to steal a ship and fly it to Earth. What could possibly go wrong? We saw the first few minutes of this last time, but as the narrator is catching us up this week, Dr. Smith and the robot emerge from behind the rock, and Dr. Smith orders his insensitive friend to play follow the leader as he sneaks up the ramp into the alien's ship. Once the robot and his leader are safely inside the control room, Dr. Smith pauses for just a moment to take a look around, but he's not interested in a tour. He's ready for blast-off. Safely aboard. You will take off immediately. I will need time to study the controls. You have exactly five seconds. Well, what are you waiting for? I must scan and compute control systems. I do not wish to make an error. (laughs) But Smith's impatience is getting the better of him. He scolds the robot for making a problem out of everything. He says it's all perfectly simple. And he points to Jello Mold number one, saying, This probably starts the power system. And the robot says, Warning, do not tamper with alien controls. Despite the robot's warning to look and don't touch, Manchild Smith can't resist. And there's no Houston We Have liftoff moment, just strange electronic sound effects. Then Smith tries Jello Mold number two, and things get worse. Now we see all the Keeper's collection chamber doors slide open. Strange creature noises causes a worried look on Smith's face. I think I may have done something wrong. (laughs) Then there's another loud roar, and that convinces him uh, they better skedaddle. Come along, you ninny! Yeah. Well, they have to hurry because we're about to see Smith just hasn't released the hounds. He's released the monsters. So they retreat back to their hiding spot outside the spaceship, and Dr. Smith can't help but blame the robot for all of this. It's your fault, you tin-plated fool. You missed a golden opportunity to leave this miserable planet. (laughs) Suddenly, as they're watching the ship, the robot announces, Danger! Extreme danger! All creatures escaping, and the music gets frenetic, and the creature sounds start up in full bore, and and of course we mentioned this last week, we get the Fab Four, the hairy horned beast, the rubberoid, the skunk cabbage, and last but not least, Kurt, that baby Cyclops. Isn't he cute? Wink. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Smith is completely frozen in terror, and just when it couldn't get any worse, he looks up and sees the bat-winged owl creature comes flying down towards him and causes him to emit another one of his classic screams. You know, just as an aside, I I don't think I mentioned this last time, in Cushman's book, he refers to this monster as the Gilman's bat, and there's no explanation. I thought I heard from someone that Gilman was a character, you know, behind the scenes that it kind of reminded them of. I don't know who told me that. That sounds familiar, but I couldn't find it anywhere. I even did a little quick looking online, and so if anybody out there knows the story behind this, please give us a shout, because I would like to solve that mystery. Uh, I did like this part, though, because Smith falls down to the ground, and that monster doesn't just run over to him. It swoops down. It's like on wires or something, and it makes multiple low passes, just barely skimming over his head as he's cowering. And finally, it does make a landing a few feet away and turns, moving in for the kill. And Dr. Smith rises up next to the robot and orders orders him to attack it with his laser claws. Do something, you fool. Don't just stand there. Well, the robot does, and that owl didn't stand a chance because just one good bolt from the old robot disintegrates him instantly in a puff of smoke. He didn't even get a snap, crackle, or one of those famous pops. He just disappeared. That kind of makes sense, you know, because uh, birds are made up of a lot lighter stuff. You know, they have hollow bones and everything so they can fly. But what I loved about that effect, Smith was on the ground and you didn't actually see the monster. You just saw this shadow flying across his body, which was pretty darn cool. It was cool. That's a great point. 
I want to mention here, this is one of those plot points that Tony Wilson added to Slater's script, uh, the whole Gilman Bat part of it. And that was based on input from Irwin Allen. I'm sure glad he did because we got that additional cool monster. And it's one of the rare ones I don't remember seeing later on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. I guess they didn't think of a way to convert the wings to fins. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. Just paint it green. No one will know the difference. Yeah, give it some scales. The robot reports that period of reasonable safety will now ensue, but Smith wants complete safety back at the Jupiter 2, so they start to head in that direction, even though the robot reminds him all those monsters they saw are still on the loose. And just then, Smith's scheming mind comes up with yet another way to turn this situation to his advantage. Now that all the animals are gone, there's room for passengers. Perhaps he can persuade the Keeper to take them back to Earth. After all, what else can he do? Destroy all of us for what you have done. <laughs> Me? Uh, Smith instantly realizes that the robot is a material witness to his actions at the Keeper's ship, so he orders him to wipe his memory clear of all the events related to that crime of the century, and that satisfies the good doctor for the moment. But before they can press back onto the Jupiter, they're surprised by the mate of that owl bat, and she doesn't look pleased at the fact that they destroyed her spouse. Before we go to opening credits, Smith screams out, Oh dear, run for your life! When we return from the title break, we see John and Don are working on laying pipe for that new irrigation system. And one little nerdy note that I saw mentioned online about this, because they're showing the title cards during the first few seconds of this, is that part one of The Keeper said, The Keeper, part one, with an Arabic number. And then part two says, The Keeper, part two, but it uses a Roman numeral. That's pretty nerdy. But, <laughs> you know, maybe it was intentional humor, like, what was it, Home Alone, where he says, I'll give you three reasons why I should beat you up. One, you're my little brother. B, you're a stupid little brother. And D, I don't like you. You know, it just totally messes it up. It is. Well, that's definitely a nerdy little point. You're right. Don laments, just once I'd like to see Smith start something and finish it. John defends Smith. Well, he got most of it done, which for Smith is quite an accomplishment. And just then, John freezes in mid-sentence and tells Don not to make any sudden moves. And that's when we get the reveal of this giant, and I'm guessing hungry lizard, whose appearance is announced with that classic monster stinger music. Looking up at it from below, it does give the impression that it's huge, but then when they cut to a nicely done split screenshot of the two men mere feet away from it, we see that, yes, it is dinosaur size, because John and Don look like they're just appetizers for that thing. Oh, it was so weird, because, I mean, <laughs> I almost thought this was like an unintentionally funny part, because if you notice, John continues his action of installing the valve, you know, I mean, I know he wants the monster not to notice that he knows him, but... <laughs> You know, it's sort of like, I really want to finish this valve before I run. So this is coming from the same guy that when a burning comet is approaching, he still wants to finish that spacewalk, you know, even though his <laughs> wife is trapped on the outside. John doesn't like to leave things undone. I'll say that much for him, huh? No. Nope. Okay. So, you know, this is not a model or a puppet. This is a real reptile, right? And I'm going to ask you, did you have any idea what kind of lizard that was? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that would have been a uh, monitor lizard. Okay. 
And those are pretty big too, right? Just in real life. They're... Yeah, some people thought it was a kimono dragon, but uh, rest assured, you'll get to see the kimono tr- dragon later on with a uh, triceratops frill glued to his head. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, this is just a big old monitor lizard. Yeah. All right. Well, I love the tongue too. That's kind of <laughs> yeah. And I thought they did a beautiful, uh, a beautiful job on that. You know, mixing the two together, especially when they throw the pipe. Right. So the men need to do something fast before Barty gets any closer. And apparently, they left their lasers back at the ship because, as you just alluded to, John picks up one of those big steel irrigation pipes to use as a weapon. He tells the major to make a break for it if the monster attacks, but. Don's no Smith. He's going to stand and fight. But that beast is heading right for them, so John waits for just the right moment, and then he hurls the pipe at the lizard, and that does distract him long enough for them to make a dash for it. I did love the monster sound effects. <laughs> It was good with the the frenetic music, and it really did make you think like this thing was a deadly threat, and they kept cutting back to it. Those are some mean claws on that lizard. You know, that's actually a common problem with many reptiles in captivity. Their claws wear down naturally in the wild when they're climbing over rocks and things, but in captivity, they just like sit in a tank, and their claws keep growing, so they need to get trimmed. Oh, and by the way, did you know that some snakes have toes? No. No, no, no. Yeah, that's true. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, every boa and python I've ever had has toenails sticking out the near bottom of their tails where their residual pelvis is located. Of course, you can't see the pelvis, but you can see the tiny toenails sticking out near the, way back near the, the end of the tail. And that goes, of course, all the way back to evolution days. It's pretty cool. Huh, interesting. So the pair managed to hightail it back to the Jupiter before Dino can lap them up with that long tongue we talked about. And when they're inside the ship, Don switches on that force field again, just in the nick of time. And we get to see the lizard get a nasty little zap on his nose before he can come any closer. Don mentions he's never seen a lizard like that, but John reminds him of the little lizard in the keeper's cage from part one. And he says, quite a coincidence, isn't it? And that kind of confused me, Kurt. What did you take him to mean by that? Is this little lizard we saw before just turned giant now that it's let loose on the planet? Or was it giant to begin with? What did you take from that? Well, I did assume that it had grown. At least um, John was alluding to that. But I, I didn't assume it was from the mutating phenomena that they had discussed before until you just mentioned it now. That's kind of a, a neat continuity um, Easter egg of sort. We love catching all the continuity errors in this series, but it's even more fun when you spot a hidden gem of genius, you know, mm-hmm. well played, sir. Yes. Yeah, well, he just, there was no further explanation. It just sort of left it to your imagination. And my wife was actually saying, well, maybe he found some of those Oasis papayas and started eating them and grew like Dr. Smith did, <laughs> you know, so. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. I kind of thought that maybe he was suggesting that the keeper had grown it, you know, mm. and that, but, you know, that was just at the time when he said it, because John said, sounded very suspicious. He said, rather a big coincidence, isn't it? You know, something like that. And he looked at, he looked at uh, Don in a way suggesting, you know, this was no accident. Well, I will say this, as big as the keeper's ship is, if he has room inside for all the giant dinosaurs that we see on that ship, it's even bigger than we thought before, you know? Okay, but here's another possibility. If all the animals have been let loose and that reptile was eating other animals, you know, it had a huge supply of monsters to eat. So it might have grown very, very fast. And, you know, a lot of reptiles like reticulated pythons and stuff, they just literally just keep growing until they die. So they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And what determines their length is their age. That's Mm. really about it. And that when their supply of food gets limited. And of course, as you get bigger and bigger, you need to eat more and more. So (laughs) as they get larger and larger, it's harder for them to keep up. They have reticulated pythons that have been measured over 30 feet in length. 
So, I mean, it's almost, you know, as big of a, as, a, as a dinosaur. That's some scary snake. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and, it's, and it's no split screen. That's real life. <laughs> <laughs> the next scene opens in stark contrast to the tale of terror we've just witnessed. Dr. Smith emerges from his cabin, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready to start another beautiful day. Uh, and he checks in with his noble friend, the robot, and rouses him from his slumber as well. But, of course... Awake, my noble friend. Awake from your slumbers. I do not sleep. It is not one of my functions. You're missing a very refreshing experience. Ah, I feel most exhilarated this morning. The time is 14 minutes past eight. The day is Thursday. The month is March. The year Never is... Never mind the year, you ninny. It is a time when we shall soon be going home. Ah, home. Sweet nectared word. The verdant hills... The crispness of the winter air, the delight... You're talking to yourself again, Dr. Smith. An intelligent conversation with oneself is so much more rewarding than a discussion with a dope. You're an absolute genius, no doubt about that, Smith. Now, if it's at all possible, could you tear yourself away from yourself? John would like to talk to you. And what does the good Professor Robinson want? Well, he hasn't confided in me. A very wise move on his part, I'm sure. Lead on, Macduff. Lead on, Macduff, and I thought that was a funny little line. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. They had just exchanged a bunch of golden insults leading up to that, and Smith caps it off with a Shakespearean reference that Major West was probably clueless about. But Macduff, if you don't remember, was Macbeth's nemesis. Macbeth was an anti-hero who actually assassinated the king. Yet we still like that character because he's the star of the play, even though technically Macduff is the hero because he kills the star who killed the king. So it's kind of an interesting comparison with Dr. Smith and Major West, don't you think? Because we like Smith even though West is really the good guy. Oh, it is true. When the men arrive topside, that king-sized lizard is just loitering outside the forest field, still lapping its chops over that meal it almost had. John has made the logical assumption that whenever unexpected trouble rears its ugly head, the obvious cause is Zachary Smith. Seeing the sight of that ornery reptile has wiped away the smile on Smith's face, and there's some more good shots of that lizard, along with some creepy music and sound effects. What little green lies is Smith going to spin now? You know, I thought the fact that he kept looking at John, you know, while they're talking, instead of out the window at the lizard, really kind of betrayed, you know, that <laughs> that he had something to do with it, because anybody else is going to be like, holy cow, what's that? You know, they'd be staring at things, but yeah. see, he knows about that, so he's not surprised the way he should be. Exactly. So he's maintaining his composure, and he asks the professor as if it's just a normal day, as you say. You wish to speak with me, professor? And he's pretending not to notice that 100-foot lizard right outside. Then he tries to be funny by saying, oh, goodness, wait, he hasn't had his breakfast yet. Yeah, I think he says something about, I think so much better on a full stomach. (laughs) (laughs) Well, John tells him, hey, he's not the only one who's hungry this morning, and he starts to grill Smith about the situation. But, of course, Smith lies. He has no idea what caused all this. And John cautions Dr. Smith, if you're hiding anything from me, uh, uh, uh. And Smith, of course, immediately acts insulted. He takes offense at the suggestion. But Don gets another great line in here. (laughs) He says, you're not exactly George Washington when it comes to telling the truth. Oh, mind your manners, Major. (laughs) And and he also has another uh, line when when he's uh, angry at, well, he acts offended. He says, you know, I resent your innuendo. (laughs) (laughs) 
So just then, John stiffens because Michael Rennie has made his appearance for the first time in this episode as the keeper. He walks into the campsite visibly perturbed and focused on that large reptile a few yards outside the force field. The keeper proceeds to drive the monstrous lizard out of the area, perhaps back to his ship. Not sure. Watching the expression on Jonathan Harris's face, though, he's not sleepwalking through these cutaways because I believed I could see all the different angles being played in his head with every expression over his face and and no over-the-top comedy here he's really doing a good job of reacting yeah once he has dispatched the beast the keeper finally turns his gaze towards our castaways and he still has that po'd look from hell on his face as he walks towards the ship and right through the force field note to self you can't keep the devil away with a force field Yes, the devil. Exactly. Oh, we got more to say about that, don't we? John's impressed, but he's not intimidated at all. And I like this because he's upset that his family's been threatened by the release of the Keeper's creatures. And he wants to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, see, he doesn't know that uh, Smith has anything to do with it. He thinks the Keeper has done it deliberately. Right. So the men walk outside the ship and the Keeper marches right up to the ramp with a confrontational pose. And John says he was hoping that the alien would show up, but the Keeper isn't buying it. He's clearly angry at the release of his collection and he thinks that these foolish, foolish earthlings are to blame. And he even says, you're either a good liar, Professor Robinson, or you're innocent. And he intends to find out which. This prompts an outburst from Don, which the Keeper shuts down with threats of destruction. Smith tries to play the peacemaker, but errs by suggesting that they all act like, quote, intelligent beings. And that brings more scorn from the Keeper. <laughs> it's that arrogance you were talking about before, you know? he's just Yeah, he's just, he, uh, he doesn't see them as equals at all. Yeah, this line that he says next was really really kind of bases. I, I should crush you like the insects beneath my heels or something. So Yeah. And it's so funny because, I mean, he looks just like us. You know, it makes me wonder if he doesn't take any humans back at all, he could always just hire a flunky from where he's from and put him on the cage on the outside and say, Earthling, who's going to know the difference? I mean, it'd save a ton of money, right? Yeah. And if you did take an Earthling back there, people would probably assume that it was just one of their regular people, you know? Yeah. So... The Keeper's extreme anger and threats of destruction, by the way, were also added to the script based on Irwin's review of it. Maureen and Judy have now come outside in response to the commotion as the Keeper announced that he will test the veracity of the humans to find out who is responsible for the release of his animals. He will use his cosmic ESP to determine guilt or innocence. And all that has to be done is for him to grasp the hand of another person, and he can read their thoughts and determine who's to blame for what's befallen his collection. He assures them that no harm will come to them, but he must determine the truth. And John agrees to this trial by fire, so Maureen goes first, and after a second, it's obvious she's innocent. But then, of course, he turns his attention to Smith. And of course, again, Smith takes offense and refuses. Everyone else was keeping their mouth shut. It's only Don who pipes right up. Yeah, it looks like you found your man. You know, I mean, he's <laughs> such a, he could be a real jerk at times. Yeah. Faced with the direct challenge and nowhere to run, Smith reluctantly and indignantly agrees to the test, even though he says this whole business is a complete waste of time. He says in a moment of candor, I never suffer from conscience. <laughs> a true statement was never Sid by Smith, was it? I mean, he has no conscience. Exactly. So he offers his hand to the keeper, but he retains his pretense of innocence. And at first, it seems as if Smith's going to cheat the lie detector test because Judy says, hey, nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Look at his belt. What are you trying to do? Get away from me! You may hide the truth from everyone else. You cannot lie to yourself. It's not true. Aside from our talk, I haven't been near your spaceship. I will give you one more chance to tell the truth, Dr. Smith. If not... All right. 
I did turn your animals loose. But it wasn't for myself. It was for all of us. I wanted the Keeper to take us back to Earth, and I thought that if he didn't have a spaceship full of animals, we could talk him into it. You stumbling fool, do you realize what you've done? You have released hundreds of animals. They will eventually take over this planet. You will not be able to perform the most simple task outside without being exposed to danger. You will have to take us back to Earth now, won't you? It wouldn't be humane to leave us here to die. You not only act like a fool, you talk like one. Yeah, he's, he plays on his sympathy. You know, you can't leave us here with these monsters. You've got to take us back to Earth. Mm-hmm. Then as the act is drawing to a close, Maureen pipes in to say that actually no great harm has been done because the Keeper can use his staff to return the roaming specimens back to his ship, which is true. It will be a lot of work, but in the end, he'll have recovered his collection. But then the Keeper says, what about the smaller creatures that have already been consumed by the larger ones? Who's going to replace them? No, the point is that the humans are not only foolish, but they're now in his debt, and he demands restitution. And we won't have long to find out what his price is. Yeah, wow, he's thought this all out. Actually, Smith just walked right into his trap, really. He gave him the pretense that he wanted all along. Yep. He's lost some animals, that's true, but he says, I've gained two rare and valuable specimens. And we're back to that antiseptic language of the butterfly collector, Kurt. Mm-hmm. His comment confuses the castaways, but then he makes it explicit. In return for recalling all of his dangerous specimens, the keeper demands that they donate Will and Penny for his rare zoological collection. It's literally a deal with the devil. Yeah, isn't it great? I mean, we just saw how Smith makes a mistake and he tries to parlay it into like, well, I can turn this to my advantage. Smith is just not as good at it as the Keeper is because the Keeper does the same thing. He didn't plan on Smith releasing these creatures. Maybe he did. Who knows? Maybe that's why he left the ship. But the point is, is when something bad happens, again, like Smith, he turns it right around into something that benefits him. And this, of course, was an act of manipulative genius. It really was. Before we cut to the break, he says one last thing. He says, you are to give me the children, Penny and Will. Otherwise, I will leave you at the mercy of the animals. Think about it. Penny and Will, in exchange for your lives. Ooh, boy. And you know what? Another thing that makes it seem really like the devil is we know he has the capability of just taking those kids, but he seems to want to, you know, force them to do it willingly. Almost like the devil, you know, you have to sign a contract Mm -hmm. to give away your soul. Or that you have to invite the vampire into your house. (laughs) 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 Oh, that's great. Lost in Space will continue after station identification. Channel 2, New York. When we return to start Act 2, everyone is still standing in front of the Keeper in shock at the suggestion that they hand over the children to save themselves. Everyone except Smith, perhaps. And Maureen wastes no time in response. You can't have Will and Penny, and we won't give them to you, not even if every foot of this planet is crawling with dangerous animals. John adds the Keeper has been after the kids since he arrived, which is kind of true, really. Yeah. I was fascinated again by the facial expressions of Jonathan Harris during these exchanges. He's got no lines, really. And even though he's not the focus, 
focus of these scenes, he's still acting exactly the way I'd expect Smith to react. It's a little bit of a contrast, I have to say, to the way that Don and Judy are being played right then. They're just basically passive observers, but Smith is intensely and actively interested and reacting to every phrase and every word that's being uttered. Yeah, by this time, Harris knows he's the star of the show, and he knows all eyes are on him, and he works hard to maintain that attention at all times. Even when there's not a close-up. Yeah, you know, and it's not a matter of stealing the attention from someone else. He's just aware that sometimes people are going to be looking over at him, because I notice a lot when people are just sort of standing there waiting for their lines to come up, you know. Uh, Smith doesn't do that, though. Yep. So Maureen issues a final answer. She tells the keeper to take his animals and go back where he belongs because they'll fight to the bitter end to save their children. And the keeper doesn't seem to understand. He says they should really consider his offer because the kids will never want for anything. And Maureen counters that he's forgetting about a small ingredient for happiness called love. The keeper replies that he doesn't suffer from this emotional weakness, which gets John's attention, who tells the keeper that humans also have an emotion known as anger. Clearly, the keeper understands that emotion because he's already mentioned it several times and seemed to display it as well. But John's playing with fire because we know the keeper has the power to destroy our space family. Still, he makes a move towards the keeper as if he's intending to throw a punch or something, but the keeper issues a stern warning to stand down or face destruction. And I thought Guy Williams is playing this part pretty convincingly. Don has to restrain Strain the professor by the arm, and Maureen grabs him by the other arm, and that seems to bring the professor back to his senses. He can't protect his family if he's been turned into grains of dust, as the keeper threatened, after all. Yeah. Don advises the keeper to go, and then they all turn to head back in the spaceship. Bringing up the rear, Dr. Smith is halfway up the ramp. When the keeper raises his staff towards his back, Jonathan Harris freezes, and then returns to his old, silly, wide-eyed sleepwalking bit, arms raised and all. He slowly turns around and comes back down to the keeper. But I I thought it was kind of funny that no one else seemed to notice Smith isn't back inside the ship. He's out there for a little bit. And no one comes out to check on him. He's just sort of like, oh, out of sight, out of mind at that point. Yeah, or the fact that it didn't affect the kids. Or the conspicuously absent bloop. You know, the keeper must have had the volume on his staff turned way down. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. The keeper lowers his staff and he releases Smith from his trance and he sort of comes out of it with a jolt. Michael Rennie then informs the doctor that he hasn't finished with him yet. Smith wants to go, but it's time finally to face the music. Even though Smith is still claiming that he released the animals out of selfless motives, the keeper's not buying it. By rights, he says he should be severely punished, but instead he's decided to get his pound of flesh by making Smith his servant. And I love this because Smith is instantly eager to make a deal with the devil. Anything if it'll save his life. Yes, anything. Just ask me. (laughs) Mm. Now, this is a part we've alluded to it several times. I I couldn't help but think about your observation in part one, Kurt, that the keeper was acting in many ways like the devil. The, The references to the Bible and all that popular lore about how the devil catches you and everything. That's true. But of course, one thing the keeper and the devil have in common is their penchant for collecting. Has the keeper just collected Dr. Smith's soul? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was an uh, aha moment we both had after last week's show. The devil subplot is very, very pronounced once you start thinking of replacing animal collecting with soul collecting. Because, you know, like we just alluded to earlier, he has the ability to force them, but he wants to manipulate them into doing what he wants them to do. It's a very famous uh, motif that Satan and the Keeper both have to manipulate to get what they want. Mm Mm-hmm. 
He orders the doctor to come to his spaceship later, but Smith panics and absolutely refuses to do that with all those hungry monsters roaming the sands. He screams, I'll be killed. But the keeper then gives Smith a familiar looking device that he explains will enable him to travel through the desert without danger. And I say familiar because apparently the keeper gets his space age electronics from that same Best Buy that the invaders from the fifth dimension shop at. Mm-hmm. Did you notice the little silver golf ball that they gave Smith to get back to the ship? Silver. Over. Mine was gold. I, I keep telling you, Lane, you got to adjust the black and white color on your TV set. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't mind recycling. We we're used to it. But I have to say, I was a little disappointed they used that same prop. I mean, <laughs> yeah, maybe they could have made it a cube or fuzzy dice or something. Come yeah. on. I know, but oh well. A Rubik's Cube, or maybe even that little, you know, the thing that they had in uh, Hellraiser. You remember that? Mm-hmm. With the, oh, the yes, mystery yes. Cube the Mystery Cube. Yeah. As this scene ends, the reassured Smith becomes cooperative again and assures his master that he will be there. The keeper departs back to his ship, and Dr. Smith is left alone with his good luck charm. The expression on his face made me wonder, is Smith still foolish enough to try to trick the keeper again? He's out of his league if he does. Mm Mm-hmm. So next, we're back in the keeper's control room. I really love these scenes. It opens with a shot of that alien head, and... You wish to communicate? I do. And proceed. I have issued an ultimatum to the Earth people. They are to give me the two Earth children or I will not return the animals to their cages. Is this wise? I'm fully aware that I will lose some of my animals. But the Earth children are unique specimens and well worth the loss. Very well. You may continue. However, you must not let your desire for these Earth children supersede all else. You have many rare specimens. And they must be protected. I will remember. The Keeper understands and remembers. The head dissolves. And I really love that whole effect with the projection again. I think that it's just really, really a cool scene. I love that whole thing. Oh, yeah. He's got such a great voice and everything. You wish to communicate? You know, yes. Mm-hmm. Proceed. <laughs> <laughs> if that were me and I got to do that role, that was such a great role. I would like retire afterwards because <laughs> you're never going to get another role that great again, you know. I know. Yeah. Then we cut to a montage of Smith making his way through the treacherous creature-filled planetscape from the Jupiter to the Keeper's ship. We can hear the sounds of the beasts echoing through the canyons and Smith is hurrying along, but then he comes to a sudden stop when he's confronted with yet another giant lizard. And this was, again, a real reptile of some kind. Is this the Komodo dragon, Kurt? Yeah, this is the Komodo dragon with that little Triceratops uh, wig glued to its head. You know, how embarrassing for the lizard. I mean, if you were a male, no other female is ever going to want to reproduce with them after seeing that, you know. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I'd like to see how they do that. That's interesting. (laughs) Well, that's that's the scary part. Knowing what they did to the bloop's teeth, we could assume they probably used crazy glue or something, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in this case, we don't get any split screenshot of Harris with the lizard. We're just getting cutaways of this this reptile filmed on a miniature desert set. And I was wondering if maybe this wasn't some recycled footage from that Irwin Allen movie we, we chuckled about, The Lost World. But I think this probably is new stuff because it's been a long time since I saw The Lost World. But I think most of that was like a jungle setting and not a desert setting. But it did use some of the same kinds of special effects. Well, I hate to lay on, McDude. 
But we are talking Irwin Allen, the king of recycling, and he's not going to reshoot an animal unless it's with a gun, okay? <laughs> Especially if they took the time and money to add appliances like they did in The Lost World. I know for a fact that both those giant lizards, not the first one, but the next one you're going to see as well, were taken directly from that film. Is that right? Yeah, he tricked you because those films were shot in color, and he converted it to black and white. Uh... And that's why you're thinking it was a desert. It actually wasn't a desert, but in black and white, it kind of looks that way. Uh, well, there's the rub. So why yeah. am I not surprised? <laughs> now, the first guy, the first lizard, the monitor lizard, he wasn't in the film because he couldn't be. Remember, that was a split screen. So the only way they could have done that is if they happened to shoot the monster over to the far right of the screen. And in the movie, all the monsters are in the center of the screen, you know. Plus, uh, they had to have that scene where the, the uh, pipe gets thrown into his face and he reacts to it. So they had to shoot that from scratch. Well, that probably explains explains why we don't get too many more of those split screen shots too you know yeah they <laughs> did have an they had one more um, uh, lizard that they didn't use in that movie and that was a alligator with spikes put on his head but i guess that they figured that would be too obvious because that was in water you know mm, interesting oh, i'm glad you remembered that well so <laughs> well like i said no comment before but you know you <laughs> asked for it <laughs> yeah it's oh, good stuff it's good stuff smith is suitably disturbed at the sight of that hungry beast but he remembers his good luck charm golf ball and pulls it out and scares the animal off with a few choice insults and as the animal departs he continues towards his master's ship yeah it's amazing uh, how brave smith can act when he's got the keeper's balls in his hand <laughs> what what i say i don't okay. get it <laughs> as the act is nearing the end Smith calls out to see if anyone's home. We hear a familiar voice give him permission to enter. Once inside, a smiling Smith excitedly announces, Well, here I am, and the keeper is clearly annoyed and speaking in very icy tones. A fact that seems to please you a great deal more than me. Fool, why, why are you smiling? <laughs> Oh, I really enjoyed watching Harris. He went through some very wild mood swings during this exchange with the Keeper, and he, he's practically bipolar in this scene. Yeah, to him, it's sort of like, you know, hey, I can relate to this guy. He's just like me. You know, I'm like a little devil, and he's like the big devil, you know. Uh, the Keeper is not amused. Not at all. He says, what shall I do with you? Uh-oh. And he reminds Smith that he deserves to be punished for releasing his animals, which doesn't sound good to Smith and brings on a look of dread. Perhaps he should get locked in a cage, but he's such a poor specimen and smith begs for mercy still he may yet be of some use to the keeper and that causes smith to perk up he's all sunshine again oh yes indeed he can be very useful the keeper wants smith to convince the robinsons to give up their children and smith balks at this suggestion he doesn't think he can persuade them no no not them anything but them <laughs> uh, the keeper ominously replies that his life depends on it and he walks over to what appears to be some sort of space age pit it's ringed with flashing lights and I think that's actually the fusion core ring from the full-sized Jupiter-2 mock-up just sort of flipped upside down. But anyway, he sort of glances down into this pit and he tells Smith that he didn't release all of his creatures. Apparently there's one of them in that pit. And we start to hear some chirping and then some growling noises coming from below. And the keeper motions Smith to come over and take a glance at one of those things that the eyes should not look upon. And the keeper tells the good doctor, this will be your fate if you fail. Smith relaxes reluctantly peers down into that pit. Continuing with the devil analogy, it must be what hell looks like because he has the look of a man who's just seen his own death. Thank goodness for the force field that's keeping whatever it is inside. Oh dear, oh dear me. 
So Smith now understands that the keeper is playing for keeps. I thought again that was very effective. You know, it's like you were talking about before. Again, we're not seeing the terrible thing. We're letting our imagination fill in the blanks about whatever horrible thing it is that's down there. Yeah, this is actually the second time we've been tempted with seeing the monster, but didn't get to the first time being with Will and Penny, if you recall. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, this is like the dance of the seven veils, where the dancer slowly removes one veil after another, and you keep wondering, will she go all the way? Mm -hmm. It's based on the old psychological principle that the more someone has to wait for something, the more they want it. This is a trick that women have figured out a long time ago, guys, by the way. Now, in nightclubs, they usually remove the veils almost completely, but they never really show anything. Will Lost in Space end up showing us the giant monster at the end or not? We're certainly going to have to wait to find out. Yes, and before we go to commercial, the Keeper adds, Now remember what you have seen, and we end on a close-up of Smith's terrified face. Lost in Space, brought to you by... This is my mother. She squeezes melons, paints chairs... Cleans out closets. Where does she get her go? From me. I lend her my Cheerios. She says Cheerios have protein for energy. She thinks they're nifty. She loves the toasty flavor. Give your mom some go, and she might let you bring home a kitten. Big G, little O. Go with Cheerios. When we return from the break to start Act 3, we're back outside the spaceship. Don's working on some equipment when Judy emerges with a concerned look on her face. Judy says she has an idea which causes Don to snap at her, but then he checks himself and asks what she has in mind. She suggests that they go to the Keeper and volunteer themselves in exchange for Will and Penny. Mm, Not kind of what he was hoping that she was going to suggest, but (laughs) hey. Yeah. Don thinks about it for a moment, and then he agrees. Don seemed even more manic than Smith did just a few minutes ago. He started off really edgy and frustrated, and then when Judy suggests they offer themselves to the keeper, he suddenly seemed way too happy about it. In fact, you know, he has this line, he goes, well, you know how I feel about the kids, and he's practically gushing with a smile at that point, and I just thought that looked a little bit out of place. Did it strike you as odd at all? Yeah, at first it did, but then it occurred to me, what do you think they're going to be doing while they're trapped in that cage together all that time, you know? (laughs) Suddenly that smile makes some sense. Ah, yes. You make lemonade out of lemons, huh? Uh -huh. (laughs) Uh-huh. Anyway, they settle it up, and the pair will go see the Keeper the next chance they get. Next, we're back inside the ship, joining a Zachary Smith sales pitch to Professor Robinson, already in progress. He feels like a second father to the children, which makes what he's suggesting all the more difficult. John says listening to Smith nearly moved him to tears, which causes Smith to react angrily. Well, there's no need for sarcasm. This situation pains him deeply. John has a good line here. Knowing how sensitive you are to pain, I'm sure it is. Wow. John is really channeling Major West here. He's not his normal diplomatic self. Right. Maybe he knows where Smith is heading with this discussion. Well, yes, because Smith explains to an incredibly patient John that he has a solution to their problems. Give the children to the keeper, which causes John to jump out of his chair. Smith demands that he let him finish. They must be logical and face the choice. If they refuse to hand over the children, they'll all be destroyed. However, if they give them up now, they'll live on to fight another day. 
once they return to Earth, they can organize a rescue mission to save Will and Penny. I'm sure that'll be the first thing on Smith's mind. Mm, yeah, after he uh, gets the book deal. <laughs> <laughs> John remains silent through all this. Smith withdraws, and he bumps into Maureen on her way in. He changes back to his old syrupy demeanor and says, I believe your husband has something to discuss with you. And she's a little bit bemused, and she asks John why Dr. Smith is acting like the cat that ate the canary. Then we see Smith is actually eavesdropping around a bulkhead while John has an idea of his own. And again, just like Don and Judy did before, he suggests that perhaps the keeper will accept a substitute for Will and Penny, namely them. Maureen agrees they'll leave right away and hope he accepts their offer. Okay, now did you notice John isn't smiling as much as Don was at this point? (laughs) I guess they've been married a little too long. I'll have to watch that again. (laughs) The scene ends with a shot of Smith peering around the wall. He's very interested in this development. He heard the whole thing and the wheels are turning in his head. Of course, we can't forget he's got every reason to hope the Keeper will take something and not feed him to whatever monster is waiting in that pit back at the ship. You know, the way he keeps popping up and eavesdropping on everybody, he really is kind of like a bastard son of the devil, you know, a a devil wannabe, you know, lurking and eavesdropping (laughs) and trying to manipulate people. But he's just not in the same league. But still, you know, that doesn't stop him from trying, does it? No, it doesn't. So next we cut back to a short scene on the dusty trail to the Keeper's ship. John and Marine are making their way carefully along the path. John is armed with a laser rifle for protection. This would have been the perfect place to insert that matte painting of the ship again, in my humble opinion. We haven't seen it in this episode, and some of the viewers may not have seen the last episode. But for whatever reason, they skipped the whole one and a half to two seconds that it would have taken to show it again. Kind of strange. Yeah, it's missed. It sure is. And they just cut away to the close-up of the ramp again. Right. So they've arrived unarmed at the entrance to his ship, and he seems to have anticipated their arrival and the purpose for their visit. Perhaps he's been listening along with Smith, hmm? Although he invites them in, and he appears willing to listen, he warns that he will only accept the children right away. After they enter the ship, we cut back to the Jupiter where Don and Judy are sneaking out to make their offer as sacrificial lambs. Judy pauses to ask if they should tell their parents what they're up to, but Don says it's better this way. They just try to stop them after all. Again, as they depart, the camera pans over to the porthole by the Jupiter hatch, and we see Smith's head slowly rising up into view. He's been silently listening and observing, and I can only wonder what's going on in that devious mind. Mm -hmm. Then we're back inside the Keeper's control room set, and for some reason this time, it seemed like it was lit a lot brighter than before to me, which kind of destroyed some of the illusion. I don't know if that's because it was a daytime scene, and they were just trying to make a difference there, but... Well, don't forget, it's a different director from last week, and he wouldn't have seen the other episode at all. It was still in, you know, being pieced together. He might have seen some dailies, but that's it. So, that type of continuity problem is completely understandable. That's a good point. John and Marine are looking around the control room, and the keeper leaves his staff standing across the room. He can't take them on a tour of his collection because, of course, they're all released. Marine reminds him that he could recall them if he wished, but that won't get him what he wants, will it? John informs the keeper that he can't have the kids, but they're willing to go instead. And the keeper seems genuinely impressed with this act of sacrifice, but after momentarily considering it, he tells the parents he cannot accept. They're just too old. They wouldn't adjust to captivity. Only the children will do. He seems to take a little bit of uh, delight in that. You know, I mean, it's, he thought all this through, I think. I think he knows that these things are going to occur. But Well, then, just at that moment, we hear Don shouting outside, is anybody home? And the keeper suggests they go greet them and leads on. Bringing up the rear, though, 
John pauses by the keeper's standing staff. He grabs it, looks at it, and then throws it down on the floor with anger. Hmm. I was wondering about this, too. I said, the only reason I could imagine that the keeper would leave his staff unattended is that it must be programmed only to work for him. But John doesn't know that. So I wondered, why wouldn't he try to take the staff and use it to save his family? Or maybe it requires the belt as well, or maybe that would be violating his principles. I don't know. But throwing that staff down is going to be an important plot point, as we will see. Well, they've already promised they wouldn't resort to violence. So stealing the staff and using it against the keeper may have been a affront to his honor. Mm-hmm. You know, when your kids are on the line, I say the gloves are off, but this is the late 1960s, so maybe the code of honor was just more strict at that time. Yeah, fair point. As the keeper emerges from his hatch, we see Don and Judy standing there outside. He's impressed with their act of sacrifice as well. But then, Maureen appears from inside the ship, and suddenly, thinking that her mom would be angry, Judy explains that it was her idea, and Don looks a little sheepish too. I- they, they, they acted like they were caught trying to elope, which, in a way, they kind of were. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was my idea. I thought perhaps... Oh, Judy, it was a wonderful thing to do. You know why we're here, so let's get on with it. Judy and I will go with you in place of Will and Penny. The boldness and courage of youth. It's a refreshing sight to a weary traveler such as myself. Well, what do you say, yes or no? You're both exceedingly handsome. I would take you with me, but for one important point. And what's that? The very things which I admire in you. Boldness and courage. The first opportunity you would attempt to escape. No, you won't do at all. Frankly, I'm sorry. Now, there doesn't seem to be much more to be said, does there? So this meeting is at an end. Come on, darling. You know, this didn't make a whole lot of sense because if you remember in part one, he approached them and asked them to be a specimen. So here... They're volunteering for another reason. I don't know why if they weren't going to try to escape before, they wouldn't, they would suddenly try to do it at this point, but. Yeah. Maybe it's just more devilish uh, thinking on this part. I only want what you really don't want to give up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes it fun. You know, kind of like those seventh veils. The the more you have to fight for it, the more fun it is. But I did love the reaction of Don and Judy as they kind of looked down, you know, when he says this. So they kind of gave a guilty expression when he said that, like, yeah, that they, they would do that. And they knew that they would do that. Correct. Yeah. There's nothing left to be said except goodbye. So the castaways head back for home, rejected and frustrated that they've nothing to show for their efforts. As the keeper watches them depart, and before he returns inside his ship, there's a quick cutaway to that staff lying on the floor. It blinks out, and then we see the lights of the force field pit flash. There's an electrical sparking that ends with those lights on the edge of the pit also going dark. Uh Uh-oh. With the act drawing to a close, the keeper shouts after them, Send me the children! And then he turns and goes back inside his ship. He doesn't see his staff at first, but then he notices it lying on the floor. When he picks it up, it's clearly malfunctioning because he tries to shake it into action, but there's no response. And we're on a close-up of Michael Rennie's concentrating face when we start to hear that menacing music, and we can just faintly see something creeping up behind his head. And we don't have to wait long to find out that it's this giant hairy claw on the end of a tentacle emerging from that pit. We're finally seeing a little piece of that horror anyway, Kurt. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a tentacle, though. It was more like an insect-like, crab-like claw, you know? Yeah. When I think of a tentacle, I think like an octopus. This was a stiff, rigid 
made. Right. Uh, it had an exoskeleton type. Yeah, and it had an elbow to it, you know, as well. Mm-hmm. Well, that claw grabs Rennie by the throat, and he's taken down to the floor as he struggles to free himself from its grasp. Before we go to break, he does finally manage to free himself from the grip of that claw, but in the process, he appears to lose consciousness and fall like a coffin nail onto the floor. Well, we'll have to wait until we return for Act 4 to learn whether that was the Keeper's last act. I love that scene. And although it seemed the claw let go without any real reason to do so, you know, it was still great. And I'm hoping that we'll see more of that monster. But if we don't, you know, at this point I'm satisfied. At least, you know, I got to see some of the monster and it was pretty cool. It was. Support for this nonprofit podcast is made in part by Monster Wax Trading Cards, limited edition producers of science fiction, horror, and monster trading cards since 1992. For more information, see the website at monsterwax.com. As we return from commercial, Will and Penny are sitting in the upper deck looking out of the viewport wondering where the rest of the family could be. Will mentions that the force field is on, but Penny replies that it only stops people from coming in, not out. Interesting question answered, huh, Kurt? Yeah, we were wondering about that. I appreciate the fact that they addressed what would otherwise have been a continuity issue because, you know, all those people left, how'd they get out? Who was turning off the force field when they left and who was turning it back on after they were out. But we also remember that the robot had to turn off the force field before when he was leaving in an earlier episode. So what gives? Can people leave with it on, but machines cannot? And if that's the case, how did that little rocket in the raft leave to go up a thousand feet before exploding and then fall back down only to get dissipated by the force field, which was obviously on the whole time? Mm-hmm. They seem to be making this stuff up as they go along. But hey, you know, if they stick to this new rule, what you might call the reverse Roach Motel rule, where visitors can't check in, but they can always check out. I'm cool with that. I like that. The reverse Roach Motel rule. I got to file that one away. That's good. Suddenly, Dr. Smith walks in to tell the children that their parents have left to plead with the keeper to take them instead of the children. Not only that, but so have Don and Judy. And he adds, They may never return. Mm. He starts to use all his wiles to convince the children to go negotiate for a better deal with the keeper themselves. And we've seen Dr. Smith do this before. The kids do seem very vulnerable since they're already worried about the fate of their family. So I guess this was a little bad planning on the part of the other four adults. By not talking with each other before they left, they've managed to leave the children in the hands of the worst babysitter ever. Yeah, really. With shipmates like Dr. Smith, who needs neighbors like the Keeper. Mm -hmm. We must face reality. They may never return. Dr. Smith, please don't talk like that. Wood grieves me too, my dear child. But we mustn't hide from the truth. Oh, it is indeed a dark day for all of us. But we may yet be able to find a little ray of sunlight. What do you mean? We will go to the keeper and ask him to collect his animals without exacting such a fearful penalty from us. You mean not take us with him? Precisely. I don't know, Dr. Smith. The keeper wants to add us to his collection pretty bad. Very true. But consider this. Who could resist the tears and pleading of two innocent children? Not even a heart of stone would fail to be moved. Dr. Smith, we'll go see the keeper. A very wise decision. Come, let us leave immediately. 
Is something wrong? What about the animals? Suppose we run into one that's dangerous. Never fear. Smith is here. I will protect you. Come, children. Let us go. Let us go. What about the monsters on the loose? Never fear. Smith is here. And he says that, holding up one of the keeper's balls, with no explanation. They all pile out of the ship, heading for the fate that awaits them. By the time the parents have returned to the ship, the kids are gone, which causes Marine to become annoyed at first. When Don emerges to report that Smith is also missing, it's all too clear now what's going on. John and Don split up to search for them. As he leaves, John tells Marine not to worry. But a few seconds later, she says she's also going to go looking for the kids, and she tells Judy to remain at the ship just in case they return. With all this splitting up, I was just hoping for once they'd have their walkie-talkies with them. Nah, that would make too much sense. Like breaking (laughs) out the jetpack to find the kids easier, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. But who could think logically when there's a monster behind every rock and a commercial behind every corner, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Then we go to what I call the survivor sequence of this episode. It's a series of quick cuts between different outback travelers, starting with Team Smith. He's had to stop for a rest. His feet are blistered, and he's pouring sand out of his boots. You better give him a purple heart. Mm -hmm. It must be getting close to sundown because all three of them, I notice, have big flashlights with them. And Smith is back to his oh the pain, oh the pain bit here. And sure enough, it is getting late because Will says they better hurry if they're going to get to the keeper's ship before dark. Then next we cut to a scene of Don, who's also armed with a flashlight in addition to his laser rifle. He's calling for the kids, but instead he manages to attract the attention of another supersized roaring reptile. Now, what's this one, Kurt? Well, actually, this is a iguana from the Lost World, wearing the same horns and eating the same veggies he did in that movie. <laughs> ah, good. So we finally got the iguana. <laughs> oh, yeah. Night of the iguana. So. They basically used all the big lizards that were available. You know, the alligator. Yeah. Actually, they used a caiman. I called it an alligator, but it was a caiman. Uh, I see. Iguana, monitor, and of course, a kimono dragon. I guess you can't really use... What are those orange and black lizards? I yeah, those are Gila monsters. Yeah. They're, they're easy to get because they're down in Mexico, but they're poisonous. But, yeah. you know, it's actually... They're not as dangerous as people think because they, they're kind of like coral snakes. They have to chew on you in order to release the poison. But who wants to take that chance when you're in a union shop? <laughs> not me. <laughs> <laughs> and in California, no less, which has got more lawyers than the entire country of Japan. You know, just in San Francisco, there's more lawyers than there is in all of Japan. Oh, Lord. Really. Yeah, and that's, that's not an exaggeration. Someone added him up. Mm. Next, we see Maureen is also dodging the dangerous creatures that seem to be lurking with the commercials out behind every rock. In most of these shots, again, we're not seeing the animals, but we're hearing them, which is sometimes a little scarier than what we get to see. I agree. They can cut corners using great sound effects and super music very effectively in Lost in Space, and they do. It's, it's a great technique. Mm-hmm. I think the guy who did the sound deserves a lot more credit than he ever got because, I mean, let's face it, he did amazing stuff on a shoestring budget there. He's saving them a ton of money. Yeah, I could use some of those sound effects. They're good. Next, we check in on John, who's also trying to avoid being a meal for one of those beasts. And then finally, we're back with Team Smith. Night has now fallen, but they're still not at the Keeper's ship. But we are hearing all those terrifying roars and growls, and it's clearly a nerve-wracking experience for Smith, even though he has his little good luck charm. But when the scared kids suggest they head back to the ship and try tomorrow, he feigns bravery. Is this fear I detect? (laughs) 
Well, I can remember times when you weren't so brave yourself, says Will. For someone so young, you have a very old memory. Mm. Just then, Penny sees something heading towards them. It's a light, and we quickly recognize it's Don, but for some reason, they don't. So we get another never fear moment from Smith as he pulls out that golf ball, which starts to glow and hum, and he starts saying, Go away! Shoo! But then they finally recognize who it is, and hallelujah, the cavalry has arrived in the nick of time. But there's no time for celebrations, because Don asks what the heck they're doing out here. When Smith admits they're heading to see the keeper, he accuses Smith of being the brains behind the scheme. But with a little silent prompting, the kids, yet again, cover for Smith, saying it was all of their idea. Oh boy, Smith's really got them trained, doesn't he? Yeah. Don says no visits to the keeper tonight. They're going to head back for the chariot that's parked just a few yards away and get back to the Jupiter, and Smith isn't happy with this turn of events, but he survived to fight another day. Then we cut back to Marine, who's already at the Keeper's ship. She doesn't see any sign of the kids outside, so since the hatch is open, she decides to go in and look for them. But when she enters the control room, she discovers that the Keeper is unconscious, lying on the floor next to his darkened staff. Now, you notice she has her gun drawn, and you wouldn't have blamed her if she'd taken advantage of that opportunity to finish him off, but she doesn't. Instead, she kneels down next to him, and in an act of kindness, she manages to revive him. And when he comes to, he's deeply touched by her compassion. But when he learns from Marine that the children are missing and outside, he becomes alarmed. He finally decides that it's best for him to begin recalling his animals. I wanted to mention here that in Slater's original treatment, we never again see the Keeper after he's attacked by that claw in Act 3. This whole part where Marine also is searching for the kids and helps the keeper, all of that was added by Tony Wilson. And I think it's a pretty critical plot element that would have been missed if it hadn't been added. Oh, wow. That's that's cool to know. The story would have worked fine the other way, but having the Robinsons destroy their enemy by making him their friend is even better, in my opinion. It makes you feel that not only is evil punished, but that sometimes it's best defeated by compassion and goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, d- I definitely like that they had that in there. So it's just a more evolved way of dealing with the same thing. I mean, they both they both end up at the same spot, but this is a more elaborate and uh, neat and somehow satisfying way to get there. Although, if the keeper dies, I was just thinking about this as you were speaking about it. Then we're still left with the dilemma about what to do about all the animals, and I suppose the only solution would be for John to get out his laser rifle and do what he does best. Well, you know, now that you mention it, maybe I would have liked the other way better because what they probably were thinking was, well, now we just have an excuse for uh, you know lots of more monsters on this planet, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they could have just you know they were probably thinking they would work it into future scripts. The Monster of the Week. True enough. This is interesting how this episode is kind of like a dividing fork in the road for Lost in Space. It's the first two-parter. It's right when Batman started. And they could have gone into more of the monsters and more of the threat of the week. And instead, they're going to be taking the other side of the fork and following the Batman path and going to more of the comedy and camp. Yep. Next, we're back with Don and Team Smith. And the doctor is now unable to go on the last few feet because his feet and his back have given out yet again, and he needs to pour a little more sand out of his boot. Don's ready to leave Smith behind, but the kids convince him to pause for just a minute. That's when we finally get the moment we've all been waiting for, Kurt. That creature that escaped from the pit has finally revealed itself, and it's this giant alien spider of some kind. 
I mean, it is really giant because when it's shown in a split screen next to its potential victims, it's like house-sized. This time, it's not just an enlarged image of a real spider or a man in a suit. It's some kind of creature effect or a puppet. How would you describe it? This was a great monster. Much better than a man in a suit. Are you kidding me? (laughs) I mean, he wasn't really a spider because he had 10 insect-like legs, but he had a cool moth-like monster face and some sort of large shell on its back. This was right up there with that giant rat spider from the Angry Red Planet. This was Mm -hmm. a showstopper for me. I I loved it. Yeah. It does look like it's kind of a puppet or something like that if you really stare. I I put it on freeze frame a couple of times because I was just fascinated with that moth face. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we know how it's done but this was before you know cgi and it does look better than if it had been a man in a suit then you know it would have been obvious that it was a man in a suit so i I mean this was a lot more effective you know i I always kind of that's one of the things i couldn't stand about when the japanese did their king kong versus godzilla i mean it really showed that it was a man in a suit you know (laughs) and that's what would have happened here this was they did the best that they could under at that time and and i appreciate it yeah, I agree with you. I, I liked it a lot. And I especially liked, again, like you talked about, the sound effects, because at first I thought there was like this strange gurgling sound that it was making. It almost reminded me of like pigeons in a cage or something like that, combined with a little bit of a growl. Now, later on, it's going to really start growling and it sounds a little bit like the dinosaurs. But this first part before he's sort of angry, it really gave me a creepy feeling. To yeah, hear I loved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of those sounds, by the way, are things like pigeons, but they just slow them down and increase the volume. You'd be surprised what that can achieve uh, when you start manipulating noises. Mm-hmm. Well, it sure did work. So, Well, however they did it, they must have spent some bucks on it because this one does appear as a giant underwater arachnid just a month later on a Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea episode titled The Monster's Web. Although they did remove the moth face. They changed it up a little bit, Kurt. Uh, well, you know, I, I would never take that as proof that they spent money on it when you're dealing with everyone Allen. It's more of an issue <laughs> whether they saved money on it than whether they spent money on it. <laughs> Touche. Well, Smith and the kids are frozen in terror as that giant bug moves a little closer, and Don tells them that when he gives the word, they should make a run for the chariot. He fires a blast from his laser rifle, and then the race is on, with Dr. Smith hobbling along behind with one shoe on. Those laser blasts don't seem to have done much more than anger that spider who's right on their heels. The four of them do manage to get in the chariot with just a second to spare, because before Don can hit the gas, that spider's now almost right on top of them, and... Don shouts for the upper hatch to be closed, but of course, Smith's too scared to help. He just yells for Will and Penny to do it, but it's stuck. Naturally. So the, the tension's rising here. Don has to get out of the driver's seat and take care of it, and with the hatch closed, he gets back in his chair and he's ready to roll, but by now, that giant bug is literally straddling the chariot, and he's so large that they can't drive away. Ugh, this is going from bad to worse. Yeah, but I love this scene. You can actually see the monster's belly through the mm-hmm. plexiglass in the back. You know, that was just a wonderful effect. It was. Just then, Smith, though, remembers that little control ball that the keeper gave him. But darn it, wouldn't you know it, he must have dropped it. So Don calls back to the Jupiter 2. John answers the radio, and Don brings him up to speed quickly. And he even tells him that laser rifles are no good on this big spider. Back at the chariot, things are really starting to rock and roll. And I mean, literally, everyone is getting shaken up severely by that spider. John's now on the way to the scene with 
with his laser in hand, and then we see that Maureen is also walking outside with the Keeper, who's apparently recovered from his attack, and he has his staff with him, and we hope it's working again. Time's running out for Don Smith and the kids. Will someone get there in time to help? And at that very moment, we see just how little time is left because the spider has used one of its claws to break through the plexiglass roof of the chariot, and it's making a real good effort at snagging the hysterical, screaming Dr. Smith. And Jonathan Harris, he, gosh, he must have been hoarse after shooting those scenes because that was at least a 10-scream sequence there. This is a real climax, and you know, the kids and Smith, they're all great, hysterical. And it's its interesting because it's the only thing that ties this monster back to the unseen monster in the pit. You know, it, they didn't come out and say, oh, that's the monster in the pit. Nobody says this. It's not obvious. But we recognize that claw that we saw before. It's the same claw that's reaching in and grabbing them now. So we've been down this uh, this alley before, and it had horrific consequences. So when we see that claw reaching in there again, going after Don and the kids and Smith, we're like going, yeah! I know. I've had the same thought. That was one of the things I did. I put the the DVD on pause when they were showing a long shot of the spider. And if you look closely, you can see that there are little claws on the end of that spider's legs that look similar to that claw that got the keeper. So yes, this is the creature. I'm pretty convinced of that. Yeah, but I love the way that they didn't, you know, underline it and make it too obvious. It's just inferred because that's something that, you know, is satisfying us. But it's not satisfying them because they already saw the monster in the pit, you know. So they're not going to go like, oh, there's the monster in the pit. You know, mm-hmm. they just know it. Don didn't know anything about it, but Smith did. And so it they played it just right. Exactly. The claw keeps trying to grab Don and... He just uses his elbow to knock it away, and how much more of this can they take? Uh, Smith was making a real lame attempt to bat it away, but he didn't seem to want to touch it. It was icky. And then finally, John races into the area. He takes a couple of shots at the beast with his laser, but he seems to be aiming it at its eyes, and that at least draws the creature away from the chariot. Did you notice that? Oh, yeah, and I love this scene, too. But before we go into that, let's just focus on that belly on the plexiglass again. Did you think about how they did that? It was probably pretty simple they probably just took a blanket and you know put latex on it and designed this belly because you don't just see the belly behind the plexiglass it's smushed up against the plexi and you can see it undulating there it is mm-hmm. so great and they probably just had like two guys you know pressing up against it and everything but it's, it's a genius move and sometimes these small little cheap things yield the best results better than CGI and better than throwing all sorts of money at it and everything and then when they show guy here and he's shooting the laser he only shoots like once or maybe twice and it's clear this isn't doing the trick so now he reaches into that backpack and he starts throwing these grenades and they go off right in the face of the monster and my kids are sitting there going oh he got him good you know oh he smashed his face look he, he just lost the antenna I couldn't tell that he lost an antenna or whatever, but it's so convincing. It really looks like he's taking some damage, but he still seems totally unfazed by it. So we're like sitting there going, holy crap, nothing is going to stop this monster unless the Keeper gets there in time. And even then, we don't know whether his staff really works or not. Exactly. And those grenades were a cool effect. I love that whole scene. 
John has thrown two grenades and he's going for a third when the Keeper and Maureen arrive on the scene. And the Keeper raises his repaired staff towards the alien bug to stop it. It takes several determined moves with his glowing staff before the bug finally turns around and heads back presumably in the direction of the Keeper's ship. And whew, for a moment there, I thought John was going to get another head over his mantle. He loves to kill those aliens, don't you know? Yeah, really. <laughs> but that would have been an awfully big head, you know? Yes. I mean, <laughs> They probably couldn't even get that through the the doorway of the Jupiter, too. Doubtful. John looks back at the chariot, which has been buried down into the sand up to its rear axles, which I thought that was a nice touch, too. They actually took the time to to set that up on the stage there. Mm -hmm. And and then John and Maureen help the badly shaken crew of the chariot out of the vehicle, and everyone's all relieved and glad that they managed to survive the ordeal somehow. You know that that bit with the chariot being dug down, that's one of those things that when you see it, you just accept it and you don't even think very much about it. But if they hadn't done that, we'd be laughing about it and saying, hey, I I thought the monster was just on top of it and now it's right on top of the sand again. So they did some forethought there, you know. They really did. As the castaways head back to the ship, including that limping Dr. Smith, we see a shot of Michael Rennie as the keeper with a slight smile on his face, which I kind of took that he's also glad that everyone survived. But has he really changed? Yeah, we don't know. Uh, he, did he save everyone because he now cares about them? Or did he just save them because he wants to, you know, keep some specimens to, to kidnap? It's unclear at this moment. It is. Next morning, Will calls his parents and Don outside of the Jupiter 2. Something's different. What is it? Well, he says there's no more creatures or howling noises. The Keeper must have called them all back. And unseen, the voice of the Keeper speaks. The boy is right. He says the boy is right. And then we hear one of those famous... Yeah. The Keeper appears for a final farewell. He has indeed called his animals back to his spaceship, all except one that they will be forced to endure as a reminder of his visit and the trouble they have caused him. And with one last pop, he's gone. Hey, but did you notice he didn't, you know, suddenly appear or suddenly disappear like he did before? He slowly faded in and he slowly faded out. You know, Lost in Space loves to do these suddenly where they cut in and cut out because those are free. You know, all that cost is a splice. You know, they, they're filming, they stop the film, the guy walks out, they start the filming again, and they probably splice it in order to get rid of any uh, pause when you know, the director says, and cut, you know. But the point is, is that those are free. We know that Irwin Allen doesn't like to spend money on special effects. So this just shows that they were willing to spend the extra money to do that fade in and fade out. And the question is why? But if you think about it, it shows that the Keeper has changed. Before, he just appeared and he disappeared. He didn't care how much it unnerved you. Now he's almost being a little bit considerate. And he's mm-hmm. being, you know, he, he's not trying to startle them like he did before. Before, it was like a, a mind game with him, I think. But now he's being, you know, he's, he's changed his attitude towards them. So they've moved up a notch on his uh, spectrum of uh, intelligent beings, in my humble opinion. He's now mm-hmm. beginning to see them as pseudo-equals. Yeah. So I'll mark you down as the Keeper has changed. I think you make a strong case there for that. Well, with the Keeper gone, they start to go inside when suddenly we hear another howl of some kind. It's a setup for the lighthearted ending we're going to get to this episode. It may be a lighthearted ending, but when you hear that noise, it doesn't sound lighthearted. It sounds like something in terrible pain. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So, I mean, they're dragging the suspense out. Yes, they do. And the music grows ominous as we follow the castaways walking around the rocks, guns drawn to investigate the source of that sound. And when they finally reach that familiar clearing that we've seen before, they're greeted with a sight that sends everyone into belly laughs and ends this two-part saga the same way it began, with a screaming Dr. Smith stuck in one of the keeper's cages. Everyone else is laughing, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> yeah, and he's he's really over hamming it up. Uh, Jonathan Harris is at that point. He's making funny expressions and stuff like that. The yeah. kids love it. Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, give us your verdict on The Keeper, part two. And I'm saying that with a Roman numeral two, by the way. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, this has got to be on everyone's top ten list of episodes, maybe even on the top five. Rainey is perfect in this, and so is everyone else. But he actually steals the show here. You walk away thinking... This guy was made for these type roles. You know, the day the earth stood still and and as the all-powerful keeper here. This man seems to like he can't do any wrong. But there's another film in which he played a man-machine film the very same year as The Keeper, and it's called Cyborg 2087. And it's basically a forerunner to the plot of The Terminator, okay? Rennie is a superhuman cyborg from the future who comes back to the present to stop a modern-day scientist from inventing a device that makes controlling humanity in the future possible. Now, that sounds pretty much like Terminator, doesn't it? It does. But although the concept and the twist ending are really cool, the poor directing, the low production values, the dialogue, and yeah, even the subpar acting make this film painful to watch. So there's definitely a magic sauce that's present in this episode of Lost in Space with with Michael Rennie that's not in all his other work or in other TV shows of the time. So in memory of this and the pit monster, I give it 10 claws up. Ah, beautiful. Ten claws up. Well, I think it's another keeper for sure. I thought the climax of this was really exciting, and I'm glad they kept us in suspense with seeing the spider. That was so much better than having it revealed earlier. Oh, man, it's not only the climax of the episode. It may be the climax of the series. It was just wonderful. I can't praise it enough. I liked all the additions that were made by Erwin Allen and Tony Wilson to the script. You could have played it the other way, but I think it was pretty cool to have those scenes in it. I will say this, though. The last time you mentioned to me that there wasn't any padding in the part one episode, and I did agree with that. This episode, and I hate even mentioning this, it did sort of feel like some of the shots of people coming and going between the keeper's ship and the search parties, that seemed a little bit repetitive, but I'm not really sure how they could have done it any differently based on the way the story was structured. So that's a very minor criticism. Well, it could have showed more monsters, but, you know, they were obviously trying to keep that on a short tether with all the repetitive monsters they had in part one. Yeah. Well, with such a good show, you hate to be asking for more, but there was one scene that Cushman told about that was supposed to be in this that I wish they could have found a way to put in, and that was this giant, horrible-looking bird that was supposed to be revealed by a large shadow moving across the ground, chasing the castaways inside the ship. And that would have been very cool, but it was probably cut for reasons of cost or time. I'm not sure which, but we got a lot of cool creatures anyway in this one. Oh, wow. So maybe like a Pteranodon or something like that? Something like that. Well, of course, we did get those cool shadows molesting Smith while he was on the ground. So maybe they kind of, you know, stole that idea from that and at least kind of gave it a little bit of a place in the show that way. Yeah. Let's all watch this one again, because it is definitely, as you say, a keeper. Before we finish, we see the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. 
It's kind of a long one, and we will go into this in more detail next time, but the scene opens with John and Don working outside on the force field generator when the robot warns that an unidentified flying vehicle is approaching. The scanner inside the ship confirms it's an approaching ship, which sends Smith into panic mode. It's yet another alien invasion. Next morning, the men and Will go out to investigate, and they come across a small, capsule-like vessel. While John and Don venture inside the ship for a look, Smith and Will withdraw behind a ridge to escape a chilly breeze. Back inside the capsule, John and Don are exploring, when suddenly, the hatch closes, trapping them inside. Meanwhile, a few yards away, a distracted Dr. Smith notices a shadow creeping across the ground in his direction. He freezes. That is you, isn't it, Will? Then lifts his head up for a peek, and then erupts in screaming horror at the sight of whatever it is he's facing. That's when the freeze frame comes in, reminding us that this story is to be continued next week. Same time, same channel. Well, I guess we'll have to wait until then to find out what it is, Kurt. Maybe the keeper left that spider behind. It looked like some sort of two-headed monster based on the shadow. Maybe it was the return of the skunk cabbage. We'll have to find out next week. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing episode 18 of Lost in Space, The Sky Pirate. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Arg. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.